Welcome, all you loyal listeners to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, all you happy warriors, you heroic men, enduring the scorching days of summer and the frigid days of winter, you who go to work early every morning, regardless of the weather, you take care of your business and you do what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper. Instead, you heroic and happy warriors boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those that you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You belong to the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer everything that you and your fathers before you have built. Those barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you, beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow with you. You gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and so much more, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom. Well, that is another day of privilege for me. It is indeed my honor to serve you all, and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Yes, that's right. This is, as far as I know, the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. And surely, one of the tools that any happy warrior needs to have in their ammunition box um, is a clear understanding of how the world really works. And keeping that in the forefront of one's mind and always avoiding 
any tendency towards self-delusion, the happy warrior is effectively equipped for successful living. And, of course, one of the ways the world really works is that male and female are profoundly different, are complementary, and are ultimately the definition of two-ness in the world, duality. There are many examples of duality in the world. Uh, one of them, for instance, is that light is, is, is spoken of as having a dual nature. Uh, light is waves, but light's also particles. But can that be reconciled? Well, not easily. Basically, light has two separate and somewhat incompatible uh, manifestations, a stream of particles and a flow of waves. It's a duality. Well, an even more fundamental duality in life than the duality of light or the duality of light and darkness or the duality of good and evil uh, is the duality of male and female. And uh, interestingly enough, just over the last week, I've had conversations with several researchers in biology, in the social sciences, in medicine, and um, they all tell me the same thing, and that is that when they seek grant funding for their research, when they and, and so much of that is government-originated today, which is tragic. Uh, it's a huge problem, that, uh, and you'll see why. One of the problems is that uh, they know already, they are fully conditioned. These are, are good professional people. They are fully conditioned to know that if in their grant proposal the, there is any indication whatsoever that the research will have to do with differences between men and women or boys and girls, their likelihood of being funded drops dramatically. And so in the proposals, they almost always omit anything that might speak of male-female differences, even if those are likely to show up in the research. Uh, for instance, since uh, 2005 or so, there's been a lot of research on the different impact of alcohol on male and female brains. Now, by now we all know there is absolutely no question about it that alcohol has a completely different effect on the central nervous system of females as opposed to males. This is just a, a, a reality. It's something we do really know about. And it's, it's difficult and it's, it's problematic because nobody wants to hear about that. Men and women are not equal. No, absolutely not. Certainly not when it comes to drinking alcohol. Now, I know that some of you more thoughtful and scientifically inclined this, and like, oh, wait a second. Typically, men have more body mass than women. You know, uh, obviously, a 220-pound man has a much greater alcohol tolerance than a 140-pound uh, woman. And the answer is yes, of course you're right about that. But all of these studies uh, equalize out for weight. 
And so the researchers are not fools, and they realize that if they're trying to study the different impact that alcohol has on the brain, they certainly have to um, adjust for body weight. But sure enough, even when you adjust for body weight, when a man and a woman, or a teenager, by the way, teenage boy or a girl, of the same weight has the same amount of alcohol, there is significantly higher alcohol level in the bloodstream among women than among men. Apparently, men and women process alcohol quite differently. Uh, what is more, uh, on on a more uh, on a more dangerous level with 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 excessive alcohol usage, uh, brain shrinkage occurs much much more serious with women than with men. Um, liver disease and real brain changes. Uh, women far more susceptible than men who behave exactly the same way and who have the same body weight. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And all of these researchers um, had grave concern about the fact that their research was showing differences between men and women. Wow, yikes, differences between men and women? Yeah, that's right. That is exactly what they're talking about. Uh, another difference um, since uh, since 1980, there's been a very interesting thing that hospitals have been discovering, um, psychiatrists have been discovering, psychologists have been discovering, smart and uh, observant and alert school teachers have been reporting since about 1980. Now, you know that uh, my uh, milestone of when uh, things began to change dramatically in the destruction of American culture. It was about 1962. You also know that uh, there is no way you can define epochal changes down to the month or the year. It's not like that. Uh, but, you know, on either side, if you put a line through 1962 and and then you start looking at changes, you notice certain types of changes beginning to show up, 1960 to 1964, uh, more subtle things, 1958 to 1968, but it seems to all be distributed around about 62. Uh, that's not to say that anything specific happened in 1962, but, um, but we're looking at that period, whether it was uh, the Roe v. Wade ruling in 73, uh, was of course um, 12, 11 years later. But if you, and you'll find 11 years before 62, uh, there were things already happening. But uh, if we think about major changes 60, around about 62, and then we see that teenagers, people who are teenagers in about 1980, start showing a certain behavior. Okay, that's interesting. So are they like the first generation of teenagers brought up by people who came of age in 62? Could that be? Yeah, maybe, right? So people uh, come of age in 62 and uh, and they have children, you know, uh, who know maybe somewhere around about uh, 68 or somewhere there. 
and uh, their teenagers are starting to appear around about the early 80s approximately. Okay, interesting. What sort of behavior am I talking about? I'm speaking about uh, something that um, a school teacher said, whenever I see a student in my class, a teenager in the class, with a long sleeve sweater or shirt pulled down over their hands and they're sort of clutching it long, uh, I do my best to catch a glimpse of their arms because I've got a feeling that they are concealing the fact that they've cut themselves. And uh, psychiatrists and doctors confirm this very much. Of, by the way, why that's interesting is that a lot of people are, oh, they're just doing it to get attention. No, if they're doing it to get attention, they'd make it visible. But uh, they, generally speaking, do everything they can to conceal from their parents and from other adults that, these, that they're cutting themselves. That's right, with scalpels, with razor blades, with hobby and craft knives. They are cutting themselves. They're also piercing themselves. They're pushing safety pins through their flesh. Oh, yes. And here is something again. A researcher said, we had strong suspicions, but when we applied for research funding for a grant, uh, we absolutely left the, the suspicions out. But to our credit, they said, and they're right, uh, they didn't leave out the results. And the results showed that girls about three times more likely than boys to cut themselves. Now, I'm not going to say that I have a real understanding of the compulsion to cut oneself. I'm not going to say that because uh, I don't. I have many uh, evil inclinations. I have many uh, temptations, some of, of which perhaps too many of which I might yield to. But um, uh, among those that I do not feel is the compulsion to cut. Now, I'm not a teenage girl, but some boys do it as well. Uh, I don't, and I've, I've read a lot of uh, attempts to explain this by psychiatrists, and, um, and some of them, I think, have come close. So while it's not something that I personally feel or relate to intrinsically, uh, I do have a little bit of a sense of what's going on, it, it, at least uh, from a distance. Um, but that it is a real thing, that cutting your skin is a real thing I really do understand. I don't think it is irrelevant that many Muslims have a bloody celebration every year in a uh, holiday called Ashura, which uh, I think is the anniversary of the death of uh, a grandson of Muhammad, um, but don't quote me on that. But the way Ashura is celebrated, and you can certainly quote me on this, and there are uh, very ghoulish pictures and photographs available on the web um, because Muslims celebrate Ashura by cutting their skin. Uh, they cut their heads, they cut their bodies with sharp knives, and they run through the streets in, in some kind of a macabre parade with literally blood running down their, their heads, running down their faces. And what is particularly uh, upsetting to me when I see these pictures is that 
many of them are holding their young children. They look to be mostly boys, and uh, they've cut these boys' heads, and these children are being carried down the street, look like, you know, five, six, seven-year-old boys with the blood pouring down their, their heads. Um, this is a obviously a very real thing. Um, if you are a regular coffee shop patron, then you've probably seen enough grotesque body piercings uh, to, to equip anything but the most choosy anthropological museum. Um, it's, it's interesting. All those piercings and things, right? You can't say it doesn't hurt. And cutting, of course it hurts. And some of the psychiatrists say, well, it releases endorphins. It produces a kind of high, uh, which which makes it a uh, an obsessive or addictive behavior. Uh, I don't understand that. I don't know it. It it may well be, but I also know that um, this was very common among primitive tribal peoples. It, yeah, cutting yourself is is a primitive behavior, but. That's not something that I'm going to tell a 16-year-old girl who is cutting herself, right? Oh, you're doing something that is a primitive... No, that's not what I'm going to say at all. Obviously not. But in my own attempt to uh, grapple with some basic understanding of what's going on here, the fact that uh, African tribesmen and New Guinea tribesmen stretch their skins, mutilate their bodies in one way or another, cut themselves, pierce themselves. Uh, yeah, uh, I certainly think that's relevant. Certainly we need to understand it. Now, uh, I immediately turn to God's message to mankind, the biblical blueprint to reality. And, uh, and I know as a basic rule that nothing that is not uh, a valid temptation to humanity is prohibited in the Bible, right? So, um, uh, for instance, you know, it doesn't uh, it doesn't say in the Bible it's it's not a defined sin to um, jump down mine shafts and plummet four thousand feet to your death at the bottom. Now, it does say you should not commit suicide. Really, where does it say that? <laughs> Uh, for those of you who are interested, yeah, here's a general rule of ancient Jewish wisdom, and that is you are the most important responsibility you have. Uh, and so when, um, when there is a phrase in the Bible which says you shall teach these statutes to them, referring to your children, there is a misspelling in the Hebrew, which gives a double meaning and says you shall teach them to you. In other words, uh, the obligation you have to others, you also have to yourself. And anything you are prohibited to doing to somebody else, you're not allowed to do to yourself. It's a very, very important principle. And uh, it's a principle without which it actually becomes difficult to understand certain things. But I think knowing this principle, you will find uh, reading or studying the Bible to be doubly rewarding. If you're not allowed to lie to somebody else, you're not allowed to lie to you. 
If you're not allowed to mislead other people, well, you're not allowed to mislead yourself. If you're not allowed to injure other people, aha, you're not allowed to injure yourself. If you're not allowed to murder other people, then guess what? You're not allowed to murder yourself. It's called taking your own life or committing suicide. Prohibited on that principle. And so if if there is one self-improvement principle that is consistent throughout the five books of Moses and beyond, it is that you have to learn to start seeing yourself from the outside. You've got to start seeing yourself um, from above, as it were. And then you can understand this dichotomy that there is you and there's yourself, which when you think about it is pretty much what we understand on a deep down level, because when you say my arm is sore or my leg is hurting, okay, there you see straight away you are making a distinction between the you and your bodily appendage that's causing you pain. And so um, on, on a very deep level, subliminally perhaps, we all really do understand that when we say my, me, I, you're talking about your soul and you have a thing called a body. So when you say my body is hurting, my bones are aching, uh, you're talking, it's your soul expressing something about the body. It's just the same as I might say, uh, my fuel filter needs changing. Well, there's me and then there's my car. And if my car is experiencing difficulties or pain because it's not getting enough uh, clean fuel, well, my fuel filter needs cleaning. And it's understandable that me and my car are separate entities, although some people have challenged me on that. But uh, my, my air filter needs cleaning. My fuel filter needs cleaning. Uh, I need a new um, uh, carburetor. Well, on my old car. Uh, or I need a, a new a fuel pump. Whatever it is, there's me and there's my car. Uh, my fingers sore, there's me and there's my body. And that is something that's really important because it helps us understand uh, the urge we all feel to sin, right? We've all got our own particular temptations. We've all got our own particular urges. And uh, the, uh, the ability to distinguish body and soul is really helpful here because we can say, okay, it's the, the body is wanting to do this thing. Uh, my soul is able to say, I don't want you to do that. Now, the question is, which have you trained to dominate? Which have you trained to be stronger, your body or your soul? When the body is stronger, then it just proceeds to do whatever it yearns for, and, um, and the, the soul suffers pain. And one of the things that we then do is we subject our body uh, to some kind of punishment, if you like. Do you see where we're going here? Uh, so if I feel that my body is not behaving itself, it's not living up to my soul's demands, I have this intense, deep down, unexpressed, and maybe even subconscious feeling that uh, my body isn't good. It's not 
it's it's not conforming to what my soul wishes well it's not out of the question that i would want to punish my body and if drawing blood is part of that if cutting or causing pain is part of that well then i feel good about it and that's what every psychiatrist i've spoken to or read says about their interviews and overwhelmingly with young girls rather than young boys uh, they all speak of of the the fact that these girls say how much better they feel after they've cut themselves wow okay all right so maybe maybe we're getting somewhere here another principle in the bible is as i say firstly the separation of of body and soul the ability to see yourself as two opposing entities sometimes uh, the part of you pulling towards heaven towards virtue towards good towards god and then there's a part of you pulling downwards the part of you pulling towards the angels and the other part pulling towards the animals if you like and the general rule is that uh, the bible doesn't tell us to do anything which uh, we would do automatically it doesn't say uh, breathe regularly preferably about uh, 12 times a minute no it doesn't say that it doesn't say make sure you eat three whole meals a day because you know you're going to pretty much you know the problem is eating too much not too little uh, but um, when it says do not uh, do not sleep with your friend's wife you know now most normal decent people would say what why would i ever have to be told that why would I ever want to do that? And all I can say is that you must all be far more virtuous, holy, and pious than I am. Because uh, I remember as a, a bachelor, and I'm afraid I was a, a bachelor into my 30s. Uh, I, I don't recommend it. I don't advise it. I, I, I was blessed subsequently very, very much. But it is better to marry younger. And yes, I, I know all the things that people are going to say, and I haven't got time to go into them now. But um, uh, I do remember as a bachelor uh, having a friend. We used to study Bible together on a, on a regular basis, and we also used to uh, chat uh, a whole lot. And, you know, after we'd studied or maybe before we'd uh, perhaps uh, share a, a beer or two, and, uh, and we talk and, and discuss the real world implications uh, of what we're studying. And uh, we're both bachelors. He was um, uh, very eager to get married, and, and I was too, but, uh, but there, were, there were obstacles. I was traveling, I was a, a, a recent immigrant. There were, there were obstacles. Um, whereas for him, um, I don't want to say it was easier because it's not. It's never easy for any man to marry. Most women do not understand the the courage and uh, nobility that it takes for a man to marry. Women want to get married to the right man, obviously. Uh, for men, it really does take uh, a quality of greatness, which obviously um, for too long I lacked. But at any rate there was a young woman we both knew in a very um in a friend way neither of us were romantically involved with her in any way at all uh, and she she couldn't have been a nicer person but 
I, you know, I, I, I've got to tell you, I, you know, there was just no attraction there whatsoever for me. It just never even occurred to me. You know, I, I never thought of it. Uh, You know, maybe I should invite her out and explore the possibility of um, whether we could be suited to one another for lifelong partners. Never even occurred to me. All of a sudden, uh, one day, my friend said to me, I I think I'm going to ask, let's let's call her Janet for the moment, that wasn't her name. I'm going to ask Janet out. I said, really? Um, He said, yeah. He said, do you have anything against that? And I said, well, what am I going to say? You know, I don't find her attractive. That's irrelevant to him. So I said, well, no, I mean, she's, you know, we know her well. We, she comes from a lovely family. Uh, she's got nice siblings and she's got a lovely nature. No, go for it. And meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, wow, gosh, it's a good thing God makes us all with different tastes. Um, now, you know where I'm going with this, I'm sure. Here is the truly extraordinary thing. Um, they got married. Uh, I was at the wedding, celebrated with them. It was it was all wonderful. And uh, a year later, I was uh, invited for dinner to their home, and we're having dinner. And I looked at her, and all of a sudden, I was hit. And I thought to myself, "This is this is an extraordinarily beautiful and attractive woman. What a great decision my friend made." And and then I started trying to look to see if there were any objective differences. Was she like using makeup in a better way, more more effective? No, no. Um, did she have a, a different look to her? Well, yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, that in in cases where it is a good marriage, I, I do think there is a uh, that that women do look better. But that wasn't the whole thing over here. I realized afterwards that part of my attraction in some bizarre way that I didn't consciously understand was the fact that she was somebody else's wife. That somehow made her even more attractive. Bizarre. Uh, and I, I hated admitting it to myself. But at the same time, I thought to myself, okay, I think I now get the seventh commandment. I, I really do get this now. Um, there obviously is a problem with desiring somebody else's wife. It's a real thing. Wow. Um, So it is, therefore, that when the Bible says, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh. uh, Wait a second. Yes, I get that. Obviously, some people do have that urge. I get that. Um, You know, that's really interesting. Now, I don't feel that like I, I feel other prohibitions, the temptation towards other prohibitions, but I do understand now. So Levit- that's Levit- Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh. And then we've got exactly the same thing in, um, in uh, Leviticus 21. You shall not, oh, that it's talking about the third person there. They shall, talking about the children of Israel, shall not make any gashes in their flesh. Like, really? Somebody's going to do that? Yes, somebody is going to do that. Somebody is going to want to do that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves. You're children of God. Why would you cut yourselves? And that takes us, I think, to the crux of the matter, which is that, uh, yeah, 
right. If you are truly the children of God and you are connected with him, then you are going to make sure that although there is a strong allure towards that cutting, that that desire is in itself a, a symptom of the problem. In other words, if there is a, a deep chasm separating my body and my soul, and maybe I'm not even aware of my soul, maybe I'm not even giving it any thought, and I, I certainly nurture my body with plenty of food and with exercise and with fresh air, maybe I over-nurture my body, but I do absolutely nothing to care for my soul, it is possible that, yes, I will start feeling uh, an uncomfortable desire to punish my body, as it were, particularly if I am doing things with my body that my soul considers to be morally reprehensible on some level. Uh, so, yes, and so if there is ever a characteristic that primitive and tribal societies have, it is ignorance about their soul, ignorance about their spiritual needs, right? Sophisticated people understand that their soul has as many needs as their body does. Bodies need oxygen and water and food and fuel, uh, and the soul has certain specific needs, and that a healthy, vibrant human being nurtures his soul just as he nurtures his body. But primitive tribal societies know absolutely nothing about the soul, and so all they're left with is a body that is doing certain things and engaging in certain conducts, and meanwhile, that soul about whom they know absolutely nothing is pulling subconsciously in a certain direction, and this tension between the direction in which the soul pulls and the direction in which the body actually goes means I have to uh, engage in some form of self-flagellation. And so here am I, a primitive tribesman from New Guinea. Yeah, I guess I do want to cut my skin. Makes sense? I may not know why. I may not know what it is I'm doing. And, and I may ritualize it. Uh, I may turn it into a, quote, religious observance. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Exactly. Because when we mutilate our bodies in these gruesome acts of self-flagellation, whether it's pushing safety pins through our skin or putting studs through our tongues or, um, or, or cutting and gashing, uh, this is, at its core, I think one of the clearest symptoms of this vast canyon of separation between soul and body. It's, you know, it's almost as if we're delighting in our soul's ability to force us to hurt our bodies. But we're prohibited from doing that. Right. So the feeling you have wanting to do that is in itself the strongest indication that your body and soul are not in the kind of sync. You know, in technology these days, we talk about syncing your 
your tablet, with your laptop, with your work desktop computer. We, we do a lot of sinking. Well, sinking our souls with our bodies is a pretty good way of putting it. And a deep gulf of separation between body and soul is the default condition for primitive humanity. And self-mutilation would be one of its symptoms. The trouble is that since the 1960s, we have been raising generations of children as little primitive savages. In the sense, we've been raising children in complete ignorance about their souls and with utter and complete indifference to their spirits. And it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean that it's not there. There are parents who try to raise their children from, from infancy with absolutely no sugar. And, and I can understand. I, I get the health benefits of that. And whether that's a good thing or not a good thing, I don't know. We, we didn't do that, but our a pediatrician didn't suggest it. And uh, everybody makes their own decisions and acts in what they consider to be the best interests of their children, obviously. But um, for us, we ourselves didn't do it. But So you don't feed your child sugar. Okay, that's great. Now, by the way, I'm not comparing sugar to soul because you, you need to nurture your soul. I'm not sure that we need sugar. We probably don't. I don't, I don't know too much about it. But uh, one thing I do know is that uh, some of these parents whom I know have not given their children sugar, and they say, well, we're making sure this way our children don't develop any kind of uh, taste for sugar. And then one day, inadvertently, something happens, whether it's at a children's birthday party or somewhere along the way, that child has his first taste of sugar. Wow! The rockets go off, and um, from then onwards, the parent's quest is doomed. Uh, when you ignore the body's yearning for something, it doesn't make the yearning go away. And in this case, it's not a bodily yearning, it's a spiritual yearning. You have it, I have it, little children have it, savages and barbarians have it, everybody has it, and it's there. How it's dealt with is a large part of what we see going on around us in this endlessly complicated world in which we live. Now, in the same way that uh, understanding the nature of the way in which God created us, uh, a soul with a body, and how much easier it is to understand how the world really works, many mysteries, such as uh, teenage girls cutting their skin, uh, these things begin to make more sense when we have the right matrix through which to examine reality, the duality, if you like, of body and soul, the duality of physical and spiritual. And uh, every now and then I come across uh, a book or a study or a, a piece of research where the researcher, uh, although of no particular religious bent themselves, either Jewish or Christian, nonetheless do uh, stumble across, in some cases, a truth. 
um, in this subject I've been curious about, um, namely uh, the ways in which uh, teenage Americans, in a way that wasn't true in the 1940s and 1950s, right? You know, you think back to the idyllic depiction of being a teenager in America in the 1950s. And uh, it was innocuous. Um, It was basically harmless. You know, teenagers got up to mischief. There were problems. And and yes, it it occasionally happened that a a high school girl did get pregnant. But, you know, it it wasn't normality. That was most most teenagers grew up in intact families of mothers and fathers married to one another and with brothers and sisters and communities and neighborhoods. That's kind of how it was in America in 1950s. And uh, uh, and yes, I I do mourn the lost past. I really do. Now, you know, some people, oh, he's saying he wants to go back to slavery. <laughs> uh, no, I, I do mourn the lost past of what it was like to be a teenager in America in the 1950s. And now we're looking at teenage life in America where a frightening number of teenagers are living with a single mom, a frightening number of teenagers are alcohol abuses, a frightening number of teenagers take drugs, a frightening number of teenagers cut themselves. And all of these things are easier to comprehend if you postulate a deep, unfulfilled spiritual desire. Yes. Yes, Mr. Urban Atheist. And yes, Miss Secular Fundamentalist, your teenager that you have raised to be utterly oblivious of the soul, the teenager you have raised to view religion with disdain and contempt. Yes, Miss Secular Fundamentalist and Mr. Urban Atheist, that teenager you are raising to mock the church and to ignore the synagogue that teenager of yours does have deep spiritual yearnings. And the tragedy of it is that they lack the, they lack the vocabulary, they lack the ability to express it because you have, I'll, I'll use the word so popular today, you have abused them. You've in, engaged in child abuse. I don't really believe that, by the way. But that's, you know, Everything is abuse nowadays, and it's it's a great word to accuse people with because it's unmeasurable. Um, your abuse is not my abuse. My abuse is not your abuse. So, um, and so it's another one of those <coughs> meaningless words with which people are so often bludgeoned. I'm not saying nobody is ever abused, but I'm saying the... Uh, particularly when it comes to involving the criminal justice system, we, we really need a much better definition than just, oh, it was verbal abuse, right? I'm, I'm quite sure there are many children being brought up in wonderful families, uh, receiving very legitimate discipline, who if they had the ability would complain to the child welfare worker, uh, I'm being verbally abused by my father, right? And then, whoa, we'd better call in the specialists. Okay, this is the nonsense that goes on. But 
uh, back to you, Miss Secular Fundamentalist, and you, Mr. Urban Atheist. Uh, yeah, you're doing your children a massive disservice because you are depriving them of the language to express certain deep and palpable and compelling urgings that they have. It would be as if you never allowed them to learn words like sore, pain, hurt. They didn't know that word. And now there's, uh, there's something wrong. The, the child has a, uh, uh, whatever it is, a pain in the arm, but he has no way to tell it to you. Do you know how frustrating that would be? He's feeling something that's hurting him. He's feeling something that is causing agony, but he doesn't even know how to think about it because we tend to think in abstract ideas that we express by means of words. And so if you rob the child of that ability to talk and to express those things, what are you going to do? You've got a child now feeling intense pain and yet without any ability to express the pain the child is feeling. How awful is that? And that's exactly what you, Mr. Urban Atheist, and you, Miss Secular Fundamentalist, have done to your teenagers. You've raised teenagers incapable of expressing the inner pain that they feel. Yes, because God created all of us with a soul. Not everybody knows it. Primitive people do not know it. Savages, barbarians, and, uh, and uh, tribal, lost tribal people do not know about it. Oh, they have legends and they have mythologies, all of which are designed to come up with something to explain what on the deepest level each of them feels, which is a calling, a calling toward heaven, a calling toward God, a calling to the angels, the high, your, your higher purpose. Call it what you like. People are frustrated when they lack the terminology, they lack the nomenclature, but you can't stop them having the yearnings. And so teenagers need a way of alleviating a pain they do not know how to express. They don't have the words for it. They simply are not capable of saying, you know, I... God is upset with me. I'm not living up to his expectations of me. I just don't believe that a teenager who says that or can say that cuts themselves. And it's not just me. I was very, uh, I was very pleased. And again, I'm, when I recommend a book, I do so explicitly. So don't take this as necessarily a recommendation. I am as respectful of your time as I am of my own. And so I'm very careful about saying to people, oh, you've got to see this movie. Oh, you've got to read this book. Right? Uh, there are not a lot of books you've got to read. You should read, but, um, uh, and, and there are, are books. If you're looking around for something to read, then definitely read this. But I'm not saying you should use your money or your time to go out and buy it and read it. But it happens to be, uh, uh, for me, it was, it was remarkable. It was called Soul Searching. And it, it goes back, uh, I'm going to say, uh, to about, I don't know, maybe 2005, somewhere there. Uh, and it was written by two very interesting um, researchers and uh, clinical people, a guy called uh, Christian Smith 
and a woman called uh, Melinda Denton. And the book is called, it's called Soul Searching, and the subtitle tells you everything you need to know, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Uh, would you be shocked to hear that, yes, the alcohol rates, the drug usage rates, and the cutting, skin-cutting rates of children who participate in church or who are children of married parents who have a religious and spiritual life, much, much, much lower, much lower than anywhere else. Yes, so if our hypothesis uh, carries any weight whatsoever, the things I've been talking to you about and telling you of, well then, yes, that's exactly what you'd expect that children who are in intact, healthy families, and particularly families with a religious and spiritual care, in other words, uh, families who care as much about nurturing their children's souls as they do about nurturing their children's bodies, would you be shocked to hear that those children have far, 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 far negligibly, uh, I mean, really far lower rates of using of alcohol, drugs, and of cutting than children from different backgrounds. No, you wouldn't be surprised at all, and neither should you be. It makes absolutely perfect sense. Now, let's look at another problem, and let's see whether keeping in mind these timeless truths that I've been imparting to you, namely that we are body and soul, and that uh, uh, if there is a gulf between body and soul, there are going to be negative repercussions. If you are indifferent or oblivious to your soul, there are going to be negative repercussions, and, and that a healthiest, the healthiest kind of life is integrating body and soul together. Understanding that the implications of this are enormous. Uh, they have to do with how you form relationships with other people, both romantically and in business. Your ability to function effectively in a money-making zone is enormously dependent upon the extent to which you have synced your body and soul, the extent to which you have integrated body and soul together, because the way you speak, the way you come across your very facial expressions will be a function. Yes, if you are a teenage girl, I understand it carries to an extreme and you might cut yourself under the circumstances of complete uh, barrier between body and soul. Um, but if you are uh, well, let's say you're a teenage boy and this then finds expression in alcohol or drugs. Yeah, I do get it. It's not an accident that the old Latin word for alcohol was spiritus. And I think it's even used today, is it not? And not only in the United Kingdom, um, in, where, where my English comes from, but even here in the United States, don't we refer to certain alcohols as spirits? I think I think we do. This is from the old uh, Latin term spiritus, because the monks realized that people took alcohol to ease spiritual pain. That's right. I mean, that 
that's really very straightforward. Every, I think everybody understands that. Uh, alcohol is taken to ease spiritual pain. We, we get that, of course. And so uh, clearly having your body and your soul integrated together effectively is an incredibly valuable tool for your own psychic health, for your relationships with those you love, your relationships with those with whom you have economic, in, mutually beneficial inter, economic interaction, yeah, all absolutely indispensable. So uh, we will probably um, do a little bit more, and, and certainly one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do, if, if you feel that your body and your soul are not as synced as they should be, if you feel your spiritual and material life are not as integrated as as uh, successfully as they should be, yes, there are definitely things that you can do about that, and uh, we we should we should spend more time. I should probably do a show specifically on that. Um, I know that I I. I did make a note that I wanted to do a show on eating, the connection between physical and spiritual uh, when it comes to eating, uh, overeating, another form of uh, the consequence of a gap between physical and spiritual. Are there no overweight or obese religious people? Sure there are, um, but the tendency can be dramatically cut back by means of integration there, which is, by the way, why it is that when, and again, this impacts young girls, simply because they're probably more spiritually aware than boys, uh, and young girls tend to suffer from um, food-related illnesses, uh, anorexia, bulimia, etc., etc. Young girls tend to suffer from eating disorders far more than young boys, teenage girls much more than teenage boys, um, and again, understandably so. But when that happens, generally speaking, we don't call in a nutrition expert. The first person we call is somebody to help with the soul. Or in these days, and this is not a, re- uh, a replacement at all, but uh, it's just one of the ways in which uh, Sigmund Freud tried to replace the, the world of the spirit and the soul with psychiatry. He wanted to turn the the world of the spirit and the soul into a science and making it essentially a branch of medicine, which is the whole field of mental health and psychiatry today. And if you are somebody who uh, needs to turn to a psychiatrist or to a therapist, uh, the only thing I would urge you to do, whether it's for you or for a loved one, is make sure that you find such a professional who is not hostile at worst or even indifferent to religion, to the soul, to the spirit, somebody who at least understands that uh, while there may well be organic disturbances that can be solved by means of medication, in a very large number of cases that isn't even necessary because what is happening is deep spiritual torment Uh, deep soul agony is what's going on and all that we need to do is uh, when I say all we need to do not as if it's a simple task obviously but uh, what we have to do is integrate the two and bring them back into synchronization 
very, very important. So in the same way, we gain a much clearer insight into eating disorders or cutting or alcoholism or drug use or many, many of the things that not only teenagers and young people resort to, but in often more serious ways, um, adults resort to simply in order to ease that deep spiritual agony for which they lack the words to describe. That's the tragedy. Raised with an inability to articulate where it hurts. Wow. That is the incredible disservice you do when you raise children without God. Why would anybody do that? Anyway, I'm not going to let out my own frustrations about this and pain about this on you. But let's see if we can also use it to understand another form of very common behavior. Uh, We all know the amount of screen time that people spend on their devices, right? We all know that. Uh, We know that, um, again, I don't know how accurate and reliable the the figures are, so I'm not going to quote them. I'm, I'm not altogether confident that these are accurate, but they are widely um, uh, sent around figures uh, for the extent to which uh, teenagers are spending time on their phones or their tablets or their laptops, or whatever it is. Um, we've heard of cases where um, young people, here it affects boys more than girls, are actually more drawn to spend time with their devices than in pursuing sex. So whereas premarital sex and pregnancies and all kinds of problematic teenage um, uh, pathologies such as uh, sexually transmitted disease and so on, all of these things were very, very common uh, up till 2000, until the uh, internet revolution took off. Now, Actually, uh, the, um, the uh, observers and the social scientists are saying that uh, people would rather uh, sit in their rooms on their devices than hang out with somebody of the opposite sex. Is that a mystery to you? It is not to me. Or how about uh, adults who... Um, uh, make their telephone the last thing they look at at night and the first thing they look at in the morning. It's like I reluctantly drag myself off to badly needed sleep, but I I do that reluctantly as I have to leave my phone and, phew, I'm waking up. Great. The first thing I can do is not thank God for another day, not jump out of bed and do some exercises. Uh, No, the first thing to do is spend half an hour on my phone or on my tablet. What's that all about? Can can we begin to understand that? Can we begin to explain that? Yes, and again, it warrants a a deeper and lengthier uh, depiction. But in the context of today's show, where we are understanding uh, a little more deeply some of the unhappy behaviors we see around us in the, in the context of recognizing ourselves to be both physical and spiritual creatures, recognizing ourselves to be both body and soul, well, yes, uh, we now understand a little bit here 
Um, you see, number one, we are all drawn to the infinite. We all love having infinite possibilities. It's one of the reasons that we uh, we we find it hard to tie ourselves down to a schedule to a, a calendar it's it's hard for many people to actually sit down and do that because it confines you and it takes away the glorious sense of the infinite what's going on well what is the main difference between god and people we're limited god is infinite but he created us in his image. What does that mean? doesn't mean we're infinite. It means our souls, the spiritual part of us, yearn for the infinite. And that's why it is that if you put an animal in a cage and it is of a sufficient size and the animal has all it needs in terms of food and, 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 and water, etc., etc., uh, that animal is basically content. Animals live uh, their full natural lifespan under those conditions uh, with no apparent distress of any kind. That probably will disturb those people who hate zoos. But uh, I don't. I think zoos are wonderful, wonderful places, particularly today where uh, n enough is known in terms of veterinary science to keep animals healthy. Uh, we, we, we know enough now to know that animals have natural territories. Um, we know, and, and I've seen this even in my childhood in Africa, I know that you can actually approach a lion up to a certain point, and he doesn't growl until you get into his territory. And there, there is a certain distance around him that he regards as his territory. And if that's where you put the walls of his cage, everything is fine. Further than that's also fine. Nearer than that isn't, because his territory is now being impinged upon. And... Uh, and so as long as the animal has what he needs within that territory, the fact that there is a wall around confining him doesn't matter because he has no inbuilt urge to roam in an infinite kind of a way across the plains. Not at all. Human beings different. Uh, we had explorers, right? People set off in ships to see what lay beyond the horizon. They were perfectly happy where they were. They had everything they needed. Right, right. We are driven by a soul urge to experience the infinite. Um, one of the greatest professions in, for business, and here's one of the great things about it, uh, no reason to waste money and time getting a university degree in gender studies and race in medieval literature. You don't have to do that. You can just go straight into the wonderful profession of selling. And yes, you do need to learn. You need to study it with experts. There are books. There are people. There are programs. But when you learn how to sell, you are playing a vitally important role in the huge, infinite fabric of human commerce. It's a wonderful thing. And one of the great things about a sales professional, male or female, is that they indulge their yearning for the infinite. In other words... Um, I'm willing to accept a commission-only job as long as you don't cap it anywhere. As long as you, if you cap it, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And foolish businesses, fool, badly run businesses, try to cap uh, the salesman's, uh, sales professional's earnings. But if I have the ability, if I get good enough and I develop a book of effective enough customers so that there's like 
there's almost no limit to what I can make. I'm, I'm good with that. You don't have to give me a base. You don't have to give me a draw. I'm happy. And that's the case for many outstanding sales professionals. Uh, it is the pull of the infinite that makes them willing to work in uncertainty like that. And that's because, yes, we were created that way. So when you say to a person, you are confined to house arrest, that person has the most irresistible urge to get out of the house. And it's crazy because he'll be penalized nonetheless. Uh, there have been cases of people who know that if they return to the United Criminals, they return to the United States, they will be arrested. They cannot resist doing it because the thought of being confined and restricted in any way so offends their desire for the infinite that they simply cannot withstand it. It's, it's horrible. And so sure enough, they put themselves in mortal peril, but they, they, they cannot tolerate the idea that there is a place in the world that they may not enter. That is part of our yearning for the infinite. And, uh, and we have it in many ways. Uh, that is something which uh, is built into us, and it's a spiritual yearning. Because on a physical level, put me in a cage and I've got everything I need. Give me food, give me water, give me even, well, even entertainment is a little bit of a spiritual yearning, I'm afraid. Uh, animals do not need entertainment, but humans do, and, and that's a different topic for conversation. Um, we should uh, discuss that. But um, I just wanted to make a note to myself that that, had to, that has to happen in a future show. We do need to discuss that and get into it. But... Um, the infinite. Now, I'll tell you what's so great about a phone. What's great about your phone or your internet-connected tablet is the infinite. There is nothing you can't do. There's nobody you can't reach. There is no piece of information you can't get. It makes us feel almost godlike. It gives us a feeling of, um, of, of almost infinite power. That is the attraction of the phone that is the attraction of the uh, of the tablet um, it satisfies my deep spiritual yearning for the infinite now there's another part as well and that is we also have a deep spiritual yearning for connection that's why very early in the book of genesis uh, the very first time we see god getting grumpy is in the area of god saying it's not good for man to be alone up till then everything's wonderful not good for man to be alone. That's when we see God getting grumpy for the very first time. And that is not just a description of what happened. Far more importantly, it is a description of how God created us with a deep yearning to connect. And so that is why when the Bible uses a euphemism for sexual intercourse of knowing and Adam knew his wife and she conceived and became pregnant, this is not just a euphemism. This goes down to the core of what sexual desire is all about. It is the it's an ultimate connection. It's knowing another person in a way that there is no deeper way to know that person. Connecting is something that is built into us as a huge desire. Uh, it's one of the reasons that people are drawn to cities. 
you can have much more land, a bigger house out in a rural area. You can have your own garden and your own sheep and cattle and goats. You can have whatever you like. You've got space. Why don't you want to live in the country? Yeah, theoretically, we all do. But when it gets right down to it, we do want to be near other people. Um, and I know many of us are saying, I'm even saying it as I hear myself talk, oh, just try me, give me a chance to live out there. I'm not sure that I would be able to take it for any extended period of time. I think it would be great to be able to do it for a little while when my wife and I and sometimes some of our family uh, spend time boating in British Columbia. We, we are off in fairly remote areas. I'm not by myself, I'll grant you that. But even then, there comes a point where we look forward to getting back to the crowd. We look forward to connecting again. Uh, and that's a yearning and a desire. So sure enough, uh, my phone is a gateway to infinite connection. And so it's satisfying two of these yearnings. My yearning of my soul. Now, again, we've created a generation of people incapable of expressing these things they're feeling because they've been deprived of the language and the nomenclature to be able to articulate what it is we're feeling. It's even difficult for some people to say, I am feeling lonely, I'm feeling disconnected. But many times that precisely describes the problem that they are encountering. And so that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, brings us as far as I think we can go for today's show. A thank you, a big thank you to you for listening. A big thank you to all of you who uh, comment on the show. And um, the the place that is probably best to comment now, this is, uh, this is a recent development for the last little while we've been doing. But if you would like to chat about this show, I urge you to go to Facebook and to a Facebook page called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, L-A-P-I-N, Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Try and find that page, okay? And uh, you will either find that people are already asking questions about this show, and I dive in there and try to answer whenever I can. Uh, you might find other people already discussing this show. Uh, if not, you are free to start a discussion on the show. So go ahead to Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin at Facebook. Just uh, hop over there. Uh, use your phone, your tablet, or your laptop. You know, that thing you look at before you go to sleep at night and the thing you turn on first thing in the morning? I hope not. Uh, I, I dare say that uh, it's, it's sad in a way, but uh, for, for many people, that connection with the infinite, that turning to the potential to connect with a huge number of people, an infinite number of people on your phone, amazingly enough, transcends the the potential of connecting with that person lying next to you in bed. How extraordinary is that? And how damaging is this to many marriages that a spouse, and very often it is the, the man more than the woman, a spouse actually prefers spending time and exerting his energies on his phone than on his wife. Or with his wife. What a strange and disturbing thought. But you do get it, right? Because she is only one person. The most amazing woman in the world is still only one woman. It's her. 
And yes, it is true that wise wives find ways to always surprise and to be many things. But in reality, he, she is his wife of, you know, five years or five months or five days or whatever it is, or 50 years. Uh, whereas his phone, his phone could connect him to uh, an infinite number of people all around the whole world. And, uh, and therein lies its attraction. Contact with the infinite, connection with an infinite number of people, uh, it is very difficult to resist. But obviously, uh, we, we need to resist. We need to retain balance in our lives. And one of the ways of retaining balance in our lives is by engaging in activities that nurture the soul. And the best activity to nurture the soul is study of the Bible. And in exactly the same way as that long ago bachelor friend of mine and I used to study the Bible, we never ever finished a Bible study without saying to ourselves, literally, we'd ask one another, okay, having studied that, what is now different about the way we understand the world? What is now different about the way we're going to behave or conduct ourselves or relate to that world or to the people in it or to the objects in it or to God? In other words, there has to be a real and practical implication to our study of the Bible. And that's what ancient Jewish wisdom specializes in. And that is why it is that over at our website, we maintain a catalog of resources to cater to almost any area of genuine interest you have. You know, talking about things you really care about, right? If you're interested in Byzantine frescoes or middle period Etruscan pottery, no, not going to help you with that. But if you're interested in your uh, in in nurturing and growing and developing friendships, uh, you're interested in making your family connections stronger and healthier. Uh, you're interested in finance. You're interested in your faith connections. Those things, then, why, yes, you must go to rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, at our website, there's a store. And you go to the store, and you'll see you can look at this, the, the resources according to your area of interest. Are you mostly interested right now in uh, uh, male-female relationships, enhancing a marriage, bringing about a marriage, getting married? Are you most interested in finance? Are you most interested in, in relationships of a non-sexual nature, but friendships? Are you interested in a connection to God? All of Whatever area it is, you will find resources over at rabbidaniellappin.com. So do us both a favor, because I am looking to engage in commerce. I'm looking to fulfill a need of yours um, in exchange for certificates of performance. And if you don't know what I mean by the phrase certificates of performance, then you have not yet studied sufficiently of uh, this material. So over at rabbidaniellappin.com, you will find uh, the, the resources in whatever area in your life you wish to develop spiritually, right? It's all related to Bible study, but in a way that uh, reacts actively to practical areas of your life you care about. So that's rabbidaniellappin.com. I look forward to seeing you there. 
And I also, one more reminder, that uh, the place we are trying to establish connection with you is on a Facebook page called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. And at Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, uh, we'd love to open up a conversation about today's show. want to hear from you uh, what it is that, uh, that you like, what you don't like, what you agree with, what you disagree with, and uh, we can connect in a way that that has an almost infinite quality to it because we have absolutely no idea who is next going to pop up there with an interesting insight that brightens up our outlook. So there it is, friends. Uh, I want to wish you only good times in the week ahead, good times with your friendships, good times with your family, good times with your finance, all your finances, and good time with your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.